This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Charles Learson, the author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. You know, one of the arguments uh, when, when uh, Hall of Fame uh, voting season would come around and people would say, well, how can you deny Pete Rose's entry into the Hall of Fame? How can you deny Barry Bonds' entry into the Hall of Fame when they allowed Ty Cobb into the Hall of Fame? He was a racist and a, and a murderer and a monster and, and so forth. And uh, it turns out uh, that the very first player ever voted into the Hall of Fame with more votes than Babe Ruth, we should point out, was none of those things. Not a saint, but certainly not a monster. And it's all chronicled in a, in a new book by Charles Learson called Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Uh, so, Charles, the, um, earlier we were, you were dispelling the, uh, the myths that, uh, that, that Ty Cobb was a racist, that he was certainly in favor of integration, um, attended... Uh, Negro League games throughout the first pitch. But what about this charge that he actually killed a man in Cleveland for being uppity? Well, that, that, that I heard a lot. You know, when I was doing my research, several people said to me, are you going to mention uh, this, that he killed this young black waiter in Cleveland for being uppity? And I, I said, well, sort of, because if you look back at that case in Cleveland, what happened was now as you just said, Cobb was no saint. He got in a lot of fights. I don't make him out to be a saint in the book. Uh, but he came home late, with a, back to the hotel rather late, with a, probably had a few drinks in him. He got in a scuffle um, at, in, in 1909 with, uh, this is with uh, the, the front desk man, the, the night watchman, and, the, uh, and, and the, the bellman who took him up, upstairs to his room. And he wound up in a fight with them and, and had to go to court. Uh, they've been described in a book, another book, as, as being black. I found out very easily by looking at the census records uh, of the day that those, both those men were, were white and no one was killed. Um, in, a, in another book, this uh, sports writer who's responsible for most of the lies in, of, about Cobb, his name is Al Stump, he, he, he mentioned this murder but but there's no uh, a district attorney in the uh, in that in that county investigated it uh, belatedly uh, decades later could find no record of any kind of murder that uh, he described there's, you know if, if, if cop murdered someone there was a, there's no there's no record there's no stories about it there's no uh, there's no body there's no uh, incident that matches up with it cop didn't didn't murder anyone uh, and, and that's the case of how it's like a game of telephones people tell and retell a story they exaggerate and embroider on it and a fight with a white man became a murder of a black man believe it or not over the years. Uh, and, and no incidents that you could find uh, involving Ty Cobb, even 
uh, getting in some sort of a, a, a fisticuff. You said he liked to fight. Uh, oh yes, with 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 any with any black uh, black people. Yes, there's one case uh, that I found. He uh, you now Cobb. Um, people got in more fights back in those days in the early 1900s. It, it, it seemed to be a more of a macho era, and you went quickly, more quickly from just uh, heated arguments to actually throwing punches. It certainly, was certainly, yeah. it was, right. I guess that's what the you know the the, the, the duel, which had been <laughs> obviously and for good reason banned, uh, sort of right. I guess morphed morphed into let's take this outside and sell it like gentlemen. Right. Exactly. That, that and, and and that happened a lot often a lot more often than it does today. But even in that even in that milieu, Cobb was known as a guy who, who fought a lot. His great friend Walter Johnson, the great pitcher, also a Hall of Famer, said, you know, Cobb never started a fight, but it didn't take very much to get to say you know, you didn't have to say very much and soon you'd be rolling around on the floor with him, uh fighting. Uh so you know, he he did get in a lot of fights, and one of the people he fought with, he was there's a story. Uh, he was crossing the street in Detroit, and and some uh, street workers talked to him rudely. He thought and and said to get over to the to the side, don't step here, or I'm pouring this asphalt. And Cobb wound up in a fight with him, and that man was black. Now Cobb fought with many people. Uh, the vast majority of them were white, but they've been often reported to be to be black in books, and I don't know. There's one book that came out in the 80s by a man named Charles Alexander. It's quite quite well-known in the cop circles, this book, and he, he identifies person after person as black who, who you could very easily find in the census records and other records of the day were, were white. This, this street worker was black. Cobb made a point of saying, I didn't, you know, I would have acted the same way to any man who who, who, who talked to me the way he did. And, you know, who knows? It's hard to say, you know, what racial overtones it were in the heat of the moment. But 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 that's the only case of Cobb uh, getting in a scuffle with a black man. Uh, and, and there are many cases, more cases of white men. Uh, but there were many also misreported cases of people described as black who, who turned out to be white. Right. But that is that's a long way from. The reports that he would he would cross the street, uh, you know, to throttle right. a, a black person or beat them with a baseball bat simply for being in his way and so forth. Right. A very famous, uh, well, not famous, but a very well-respected baseball writer named Timothy Gay wrote a book about uh, Trish Speaker, who was a contemporary of Cobb's. And in that book, he said, the author said that Cobb could would would pistol whip any black man he saw walking down the street, any black person he saw walking down the street. I mean, it, it, that's absurd. You couldn't get to 23 and a half years in the major leagues acting like that. Uh, you would have met your measure and, and, and whoever you were trying to do. You know, that's that's crazy. And I should have known the myth was so crazy, the myths about Cobb. I should have known. I should have been more suspicious of them to begin with, actually, and not accepting them. But but they were so extreme that, 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 that they almost fall apart on their own sometimes. I believe you also mentioned in the book that that uh, Ty Cobb once also went on record as saying that, I, I think it was Willie Mays or Hank Aaron was the only baseball player, period, he would pay money to see play. Right. He said that about Willie Mays. He said uh, he also said at other times that Roy Campanella, of course, who was a black player catcher for the Dodgers, uh, was was uh, the only uh, 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 player the player that reminded him most of himself. He praised Hank Aaron's skill and intelligence as a batter. Um, he, he he selected uh, uh, 
picked out black players for praise and, and, and said that black people should be accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly at a time in the early 50s when uh, you could look back in the record and you find out that other people were saying, other players and managers were saying, well, I don't know, it's a little soon, I, I'm not in favor of this, I'm for the traditional way. They had different ways of saying it. Cobb said, accept wholeheartedly and not grudgingly, and he he. he he spoke up in praise of of, of the play of, uh, and he was a hard guy to get a compliment from. But he praised uh, those black players who deserved praise, who were some of the greatest players of their era of, of all time. Actually, did he ever meet Jackie Robinson? Not that I know of. Uh, but he, as I say, he was he was in favor of that era, and in, uh, of that uh, not that era, but in favor of that uh, development of baseball, and. Um, and, and you know, and he was uh, uh, he, he was all for integration. Charles Learson is the author of Ty Cobb: A Terrible Beauty. He joins me on the Conspiracy Show. Uh, Charles was also an editor at Sports Illustrated, People, and uh, Us Weekly. And uh, the other area, of course, that we have to uh, discuss is his his play on the field. You mentioned that he was a fighter, but we also hear. Uh, this legend that Ty Cobb would sharpen his spikes so that he would deliberately attempt to injure players as he was tearing around the base paths and and sliding aggressively into second base and home plate and so forth. What did you find out about that, Charles? Well, what I found out was was very interesting. I I couldn't find any player. Uh, I found that some of the uh, sports writers from the uh, towns other than Detroit, the opposing towns, kind of try to whip that up, that business with spikes. We have to put ourselves back in the early 20th century when Cobb first came up. Spikes were a, a new phenomenon, and the people who were sitting in the stands watching this game of baseball probably had not grown up playing baseball and, and wearing spikes. You know, they, they didn't play Little League. They hadn't played. They may, they may have played some sandlot pickup games, but so spikes were this mysterious thing. I found a lot of Stories and newspapers about how spikes were going to kill people, and, uh, and and they were a dangerous sort of science fiction uh, almost uh, uh, device, you know, uh, something that people were afraid of. So you have to keep that in mind. And then you think of Cobb, who was very aggressive on the base paths. So some of the sports writers said this about him, but I could not find a, pl- a player who did not praise Cobb for his skill and his, his base-running ability. And the attitude of the players seemed to be, well, the, some of the civilians may think this about Cobb and Spikes, but we, the players, the guy who played, uh, played the game with him, we know, we know differently. One catcher said uh, that, that Cobb is too pretty a slider ever to, ever to spike someone. Ty Cobb was a scientist of the game. He had nine different types of slides, and virtually all of them had to do with being elusive and getting away from the tag, not sliding right into it. Um, so that's important, though. It's also important to remember, as he often said, that he felt he was entitled as the base runner to this little, what he called, my little patch right in front of the base. And it's true. The, 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 the runner is entitled to that. And he can slide in there with his spikes down and, and slide in. And if you want to stick your hand there, you do that, as those guys said in 
and that that's a you do that's on your watch. Right. In it. hockey, it would be uh, an analogous to to a player drifting into the goalie's crease, and exactly. if Billy Smith with the Islanders uh, didn't want you in front of him, or or um, Ron Hextall with the Flyers, he'd he'd wield that uh, that paddle like an axe, and and <laughs> your ankles be damned. Right. And exactly. And and as far as this uh, this uh, filing of the spikes and the sharpening of the spikes. I found that that was a, a folk myth in baseball that went back to the 1880s and had been applied to various people, probably none of whom actually did it. One was John McGraw, the great uh, giant manager and the Hall of Fame player. Uh, and Cobb never sat on the t- top step, or some people say on the top of the dugout, cackling and filed his spikes. He never filed his spikes at all. In fact, in 1910, he was tired of this rumor about him and this accusation. He wrote a letter to ban Johnson, the president of the American League, asking that the Johnson pass a rule that players had to dull their spikes with a file and that the umpire should come around and inspect them uh, before each game to make sure they weren't too sharp. So he went out of his way to, to try to shake that. But, you know, when people latch on to a good story, uh, you know, when the public latches on, they, they don't want to let go. And that's that was Cobb's downfall in terms of his reputation, both at the spiking and the racism and, and the other things that were said about him. So it was, it was too good a story to examine very closely, and, and people would rather go with, the, you know, there's that line from um, the movie, The Legend of uh, uh, Liberty Balance, yes. or The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, when, when the legend beats the fact, print the legend, you know, and that's, that's what happened to Ty Cobb. Which is, uh, you know, he's he's been dead and gone for fifty-seven years, fifty-six years. Right. Uh, but he still has family. He has descendants who have had to live with this slander uh, right. for for generations. And uh, along came, or along comes Charlie uh, Learson and um, uh, you know redeems Ty Cobb. Uh, albeit posthumously, but uh, better late than never. Listen, we'll take another time out. We'll come back, and I want to delve into the uh, the sharpened spike legend a little bit more. There's a great story or a great photograph, of course, uh, involving a catcher with the St. Louis Browns, and it looks for all the world like Ty Cobb is sliding in there trying to trying to injure the catcher. Uh, you'll uh, you'll tell us about that when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay right with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? Welcome back. We're here with Charles Learson, the author of Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. We were talking about Ty Cobb, the legend that he would sharpen his spikes and, uh, with the intent of injuring opposing uh, players as he rounded the bases, and you've really disabused us of that. In fact, as you mentioned, in 1910, he wrote a letter to the, the, the commissioner of the American League, Van Johnson, uh, d- demanding that they institute a rule that all players must dull their spikes and that they would have someone go around inspecting them and so forth. But there is that photograph of Ty Cobb sliding into home plate, and there's a catcher there with the St. Louis Browns, 
uh, and it, it looks like he's he's aiming for his crotch, Charles. It looks all the wor- the world that he's trying to injure this catcher. Tell us about it. Well, you know, sometimes, Richard, when I'm on talking about Cobb on the Internet uh, uh, or posting something on the book's page, people will... Uh, people who who want to believe that he was he was a you know spikes crazed runner will send me this picture. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen it. The the, the catcher whose name is uh, Paul Critchell. He's uh, crouching. Uh, it's, it's this frozen moment from 1912, and Cobb is very high off the ground, and it really looks like he's coming in uh, right as you say at his crotch, and it looks like Critchell. As I say in the book, looks like that famous picture of Lee Harvey Oswald, where he's he's squinting right when he gets shot, and it's it, and people will send that picture, and they'll just they won't even say anything. They'll just send that along as their way to refute what I'm saying about about Cobb. But the funny thing is, Richel, who later the catcher there, who later became a famous Yankee scout, he's actually the guy who discovered Lou Gehrig. Uh, uh, in, in uh, later in the 1950s, I found he gave an interview in which he said that that Cobb was not trying to spike him. That the angle of the photo was very deceptive. Cobb was trying to knock the ball out of his hand as as he ran for home, and he succeeded in doing that with his foot. He knocked it all the way back to the backstop, and then he and Critchell collided, and and rolled around on the floor and on the ground and, and, and fought a little bit. But the, the amazing thing, if you, if you keep that picture in your mind, is that Critchell said, in a way, it was really my fault. I was standing right there in the base paths where he had a right to be, and he came crashing into me. But he never he never was trying to, you know, stab Critchell uh, with his spikes. He was trying to knock the ball away. And you can imagine what an exciting play that is and, and a daring play on Cobb's part and why Cobb was the the biggest draw in, in the American League because of the way he played. And what's interesting is, if Cobb was, in fact, this vile human being, why would Critchell go out of his way, almost, to defend Cobb in that particular play? That's right. Cobb had a lot of friends. He, he uh, One of the myths about him is that he had no friends, that he was a lonely guy. Everyone's heard that line in Field of Dreams, where the all the ghostly ball players assemble and they say we didn't invite Cobb because no one liked that SOB, you know, and 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 they, they, they that was Shoeless it, Joe's ghost that said right, that. They, right, in the mouth of Shoeless Joe Jackson, who who actually in in, in reality was was a good friend of, of Cobb, not one of his closest friends, but certainly was a friend. You know, Cobb had people on the team who were who were, who were jealous of them, some of them, and also he was a hard guy to get along with. He did not suffer laziness on the part of his uh, teammates or, or goofing off. or In those days, there was a lot of drinking uh, that was going on, and uh, uh, he, Cobb was, didn't, couldn't suffer fools or suffer incompetence. So he, he, he did have some people, quite a few, that he turned off. But as I mentioned before, Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, Ted Williams spit at fans. And, you know, Joe DiMaggio had a lot of people who didn't, didn't like him. Those guys were could be difficult to get along with, and, 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 and so could Cobb. But Cobb also had plenty of friends, including Shoeless Joe Jackson, plenty of friends among the sports writers. Don't forget it was the sports writers who voted Cobb first into the Hall of Fame. If they'd hated him so much, they wouldn't, couldn't have given him the most votes. Excellent and point. He had, he had sports writers at his house as, as, as house guests. Uh, Mo Berg, the catcher, you know, sometimes Cobb is said to be anti-Semitic, but Mo Berg, who was Jewish, the catcher, you know, was a frequent house guest of Cobb's and called Cobb an intellectual giant. 
that's the thing about Cobb. He was constantly reading books, history books. He loved biographies. He loved stories of Napoleon. Uh, he was he was voted the most popular player in Chicago, the most popular out of town player in Chicago, Ty Cobb. And and uh, he was, he was at a ceremony at the plate was given a stack of books all wrapped up in wrapping paper. So you know he was he was thought of as popular. You know, sure, if you were on the other team, if you were cheering for the other team, you you were uh, you, you didn't like Cobb because he was he was dangerous to your your team, so you didn't like him in that sense. Sure, I mean, I know, I know, uh, uh, I've talked to people who played against the great Bobby Orr, who everybody, I thought everybody loved Bobby Orr. The opposing players hated Bobby Orr. <laughs> So that's so true. Listen, we've got to take a time out, Charles. This was a short segment. We'll come back and uh, finish up. Uh, Ty Cobb, a terrible beauty, and uh, really the, uh, the redemption of a, um, a baseball legend. Thanks all to uh, the research and hard work of Charles Learson. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusion. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are here with Charles Learson. The book is Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. If you're a ball fan, uh, do yourself a favor, go out and get it. And if, even if you're not a ball fan, I th- you know, this is, Charles, this is really a, a textbook case of... You mentioned fake news uh, earlier, and you know, 2017 really is is the year of fake news. We've hear, heard that term bandied about so often, but here's a perfect example. But also the damage that it can do. I mean, here's a a great ball player uh, who has been so maligned and so vilified, and all unjustifiably so. And it, all it took was one uh, professional journalist. Uh, to do a little bit of research, and um, you know, really, I hope this sets the record straight. Has there been any any pushback? The book reviewers at New York Times upset because it doesn't fit their narrative. Well, you know, one thing I didn't expect at all is that the, the, the re- reaction to the book sort of divides in some ways along political lines. That that people uh, on the right are are, are e- more eager to hear the news that uh, that Ty Cobb wasn't a racist and that he was uh, uh, he was he was maligned by the media, uh, and the, the people who are on the left uh, uh, are sometimes resist the idea. That some of those people think that I'm diminishing the idea of racism in in, in baseball and in sports. I'm, I'm not. I mean, how could I? Black, black people were banned from baseball. It does. It, it was, you know, it, it was uh, until 1947. It, it, there's nothing, no way to sugarcoat that. You know, so uh, and and it, it, it didn't all go away with Jackie Robinson either. So I'm not, I'm not doing that. But some, the, the pushback I get is not usually. I know this sounds a little self-aggrandizing, but not from people who've read the book, but from people who like their 
like their myths and, and like, like the myth that their father told them and, and don't want to change that and, and can't believe that after they've been hearing all their life that Ty Cobb was a certain way, that people have been t- telling me, I heard this for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. One thing I learned uh, writing this book was that repetition is not the same thing as evidence. So the same assertion made over and over is not more and more and more evidence. You know, and um, I didn't go into this to, to, to be Ty Cobb's lawyer and to change his image. I went into it actually to bolster the image of him as a monster. I thought I'd have a, a better book that way, but I had to go with the, with, the, with the way the evidence was leading me, and I had to let the chips fall where they may, and, and I came up with a very different character than the Ty Cobb of myth. Well, the movie a Cobb, starring Tommy Lee Jones, and I believe it was Robert Wool who mm-hmm. played Al Stump, the writer, Stumpy. Right. And uh, both great actors. I mean, I enjoy their work very much. But that movie just perpetuated all of the lies and then some. Exactly, yeah. Well, I I talked to uh, Ron Shelton, the director of the movie, when I was doing my research. And, uh, of course, so many more people see a movie than will read any book. And so it's had a powerful effect, even though it was a box office disaster when it opened and didn't stay in the theaters long. People have watched it on uh, you know, CDs and on Netflix and all now. Uh, and I said, uh, you know, that was based on the work of this same Al Stump, uh, who, who wrote the first, uh, you know, untrue stories about Cobb to, 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 to uh, just strictly for sensationalism, because he could sell this to a sensational magazine, and the more sensational the story was, the more he would get paid for it. But that's the that's the the really bad part of paying money for for gossip because you, you know the people will make it worse to to get more money. So uh, the, the movie was based on Al Stump's article, perpetuated these myths, and uh, and uh, I said to Ron Shelton, uh, you know, where did you get? There was a scene in there where Cobb tries to rape uh, a cigarette girl in a Reno casino. And, uh, and fails to do that, and it's just, it's horrible, it's just this ugly, horrible scene. I said, where'd you get that from? That wasn't even in Stump's article that he was an attempted rapist. And uh, Shelton said, oh, we made that up on the, on the set, because we thought it was the sort of thing Ty Cobb would do. Unbelievable. You know? Unbelievable. So that's the way, see, that's the embroidery right there and the extra added filigree uh, that people put on an already bad myth. Well, let's talk about Stumpy, Al Stump. He, he met with, with Ty Cobb. I mean, Cobb did concede to interview to be interviewed, correct? Yeah, they had a complicated uh, sort of history. They stump, uh, the Ty Cobb died in 1961, and about 1959 or 60, Stump signed up to ghostwrite Ty Cobb's autobiography, one of those books that we see them all the time. They say, you know, buy the player as told to so-and-so or with someone else and the other person's invariably a professional writer, usually a sports writer. So uh, Stump was a sports for oh, you know, a long-time sports writer, got this gig writing Ty Cobb's book in which Cobb wanted to finally set the record straight. Still in 59, people were saying he was a dirty player. He was tired of that. Uh, he was also a very sick man at that point. He had cancer and a few other things. And uh, Stump started to write the book and wouldn't show it to Cobb. This is Cobb's own autobiography. And, and, uh, and, and Cobb finally, I, had, I found letters and, and, and that no one had published before with Cobb finally demanding from Stump to get a look at the book. When Cobb showed it, when Stump showed it to him, Cobb went through the roof. It wasn't, 
it was just silly stuff, lies. There wasn't bad stuff about Cobb. It was Cobb telling his own story, but it was it was filled with mistakes and filled with a lot of things that Stump just made up that, that didn't happen. Cobb was threatening to sue uh, to stop that book, which uh, was eventually published called Ty Cobb, My Life in Baseball. It came out right after his death in 1961. Cobb died before he could file the lawsuits and get it stopped. The book didn't sell very well, and then Stump, a couple of months later, pitched this story to a magazine called True, which is one of these, like, the National Enquirer's salacious kind of barbershop uh, uh, magazines, and it pitched the story of uh, his his time that he spent with Cobb, which was really just a few days. Stump just spent a few days with Cobb and went off and made up the rest, but he exaggerated the amount of time he spent with him, and he depicted him as a gun-waving misogynist who was threatening everyone in the, in the in his own family who was who was riding around Reno waving a gun and getting going to the bank president's house to get his check stopped and all kinds of crazy stuff didn't say anything about racism or anything else that came later and this story came out and it caused a sensation uh, no one had seen anything like this written about a, a baseball player before um, this is nine years before Jim Bowden's Ball Four, uh, which kind of blew the lid off baseball players not being like angels and uh, Boy Scouts. Uh, but so no one had ever seen this, and, and the sports writers rushed to Cobb's defense. But in the process, they wound up disseminating this salacious, titillating story all the more, and more people found out about it. And the people kind of liked this idea of this crazy, wild man that they thought was just a cranky old ball player uh, running loose, and that's how that's how it began. But like a forest fire, it began with just a little spark, and, uh, and, and, and that was the spark that did it, that article. And then Stump would later write a book, uh, Charles Alexander would write a book, and so on and so forth, and then uh, Ken Burns would make his movie, his documentary about baseball, in which he repeated the myths. Uh, then there was the, the, the Ron Shelton movie called Tycob, which repeated them right. again. Just, you, I just want to jump in, sorry to, for the interruption, but Ken Burns, yeah. I mean, people look at that documentary, and I have the book that accompanied that, uh, that documentary. That's, for, for baseball fans like me, that's like the Bible. And so right. for Ken Burns to repeat a lot of these lies, my word, right. I mean, that's so damaging. Well, Ken Burns is not a historian. He's not a researcher. He just takes what's out there and makes it look good and puts it on a, puts, makes a good visual story out of it. And that's what he did with, with Tycoff. He just he didn't question what was out there, to question the myths. He just took them and, and put them out there. But I'm very proud to say that Dan Okrent, who's a, a, a sports writer and editor, also worked uh, at Sports Illustrated, as I did, who was, who was in that film talking about how Tycoff was a disgrace to baseball, has said on the record that since reading my book, he, he would never say that. And if the Burns ever went back to the subject, he would admonish Burns and tell him, that uh, Ken Burns, you've done, you know, you've got to set the record straight about Ty Cobb. So he, he's changed his mind after reading my book, Dan Oakman has, and I'm, I'm, it's one of the things I'm proudest of. Right, as well you should be. Uh, what about any of the other, I was just going to say, it's too bad someone like an Ernie Harwell, the longtime broadcaster with the Tigers, never had a chance to, to read this book. Um, what about someone like Vin Scully, who just recently retired? Did, did he, has he read it? Do you know? Did, did you hear from Vin Scully? I haven't heard. I haven't heard from him. 
Um, I, uh, I, you know, I, the book has gotten very, you know, uh, been very well received. It's won two prizes from uh, Saber, the Society of American Baseball Research. It was the, uh, the, the vote of the best baseball book of the year, won the, the Casey Award, it's called. Um, and um, uh, so uh, it's gotten a, a, a great reception. And throughout baseball, I, I uh, you know, I've seen people interviewed, managers interviewed, and I've noticed the book in the back behind them in their, in their office on a couple of occasions. So uh, it, it, I, I think it is changing minds. Uh, but a book, you know, uh, has to be read, has to be consumed, and has to be thought about it. And a lot of people have to get over this hump of, uh, of, of, of being open to a story that, that clashes with the story that they've heard all their life. Right. I mean, one one book in the face of 56 years now, almost 60 years of lies that have been perpetuated over and over, that's a that's a tall order to change minds uh, wholesale all at once, but uh, hopefully bit by bit. What about uh, the descendants of Ty Cobb? He has grandchildren, I believe, still alive, does he not? Right. There are a number of grandchildren still living, and uh, one of them, Herschel Cobb, uh, I interviewed for the book, and he wrote a book of his own, which is actually very interesting uh, and, and well-written book about, uh, about what it was like to have Ty Cobb as a grandfather and how he was a you know kindly man, the classic grandfather, and not not you know not not the, a monster and uh, at all. And, and, the, and within the family, he was you know beloved. Uh, um, and um, uh, since then, I've also met so since the book came out, I've met Cindy Cobb, who lives in uh, New York State. Uh, as I do, and um, and uh, uh, Peggy Cobb, who lives in South Carolina, uh, and they've all we've we've kind of become friends. But I didn't I didn't set out to please any member of the Cobb family or to or to be Ty Cobb's lawyer, you know, I, or, or to or to make a saint out of him. I, I set out just to find the facts and, and tell the story, and and this is the way it's it's worked out. It, to me, it's I, I can't find any other story in history. That's such an extreme example of, uh, of of people going with lies. With Cobb, it had a, you had to have the right set of circumstances. He was he was already dead, so he couldn't defend himself when the when the real big lies started to emerge. And it, it had been so long since he'd been uh, uh, in baseball. He he didn't stay involved in baseball after he retired in 1928. So he was sort of out of circulation. People and and with, with also the key thing was that there was no film of him. So people didn't have a sense of who the real man was. There's almost no film of him. There's a little, uh, but, but precious little. Well, they, so do, he, they do now, Charles. They have right. a really, finally, uh, not a cartoon version, but uh, a real flesh, bone, and blood uh, image of, of Ty Cobb, warts and all. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and uh, yeah, as, you, as you point out, Ty Cobb was not a saint, but certainly, uh, no, you know, not the monster, nowhere near the monster, uh, and, you know, as a baseball fan, I, I really have to tell you that uh, what you've done is very noble uh, because, you know, for baseball fans, we, we want to look up to the, the, the players that uh, really exemplified all the great aspects of the game. And we, 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 we yearn that, they, are, that they, they take those values off the field and exhibit them elsewhere, you know, off the playing field. And, and uh, Ty Cobb uh, had that in him. And, and now, thanks to you, uh, we can set the record straight with our. I'll set the record straight with 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 my boys to begin with, and hopefully the word will spread. The Ty Cobb uh, was uh, no saint, but certainly a great man on the field 
and a, a pretty decent fellow off the field, too. I think that's safe to say. I think it is. Thanks. It, it, it's a great American story, and it's a very entertaining uh, um, story once you get the, tr the, the truth. And we now have it. Thank you, Charles. Charles Learson, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is next. The entire hour on werewolves, another one of my favorite topics. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, a taxi cab, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to all of you listening in on our flagship station here in Toronto, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. All of you listening in on one of our affiliates, uh, the podcast, of course, at Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com. Those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device, uh, the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both fabulous, both free downloads. And also, uh, those of you who uh, watch the YouTube channel, uh, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just a reminder, no live YouTube stream this week, no remote viewing experiment. We'll uh, continue both of those next week. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here for the full hour as we head on into the Halloween season. What better time than to delve into one of my favorite subjects? Let me crib here from the introduction of Rosemary's new book, Werewolves and Dogmen. Werewolves have instilled fear and dread in human beings since ancient times. The wolf is one of the fiercest, most dangerous, and most cunning of animals. Combine it with the intelligence of a human, and the resulting creature becomes even more formidable. Add supernatural characteristics, and it becomes one of the supreme mystery beings. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us once a month. She is the author of, well, she's closing in now on 70 books. Her website is Visionary Living. Dot com and always a great pleasure to welcome her back to the program. Rosemary, how are you? Hi, Richard. Well, it's Halloween season, as you just mentioned. It's my favorite time of the year because it's all about ghosts, poltergeists, mysterious creatures like werewolves, vampires, contact with the dead, all the subjects that I really love. Well, tell us about how uh, this, this book came together. You are the editor and you sort of compiled these stories. Where do these stories come from? They come from Fate magazine, from the vaults of Fate magazine, and I also added a few articles of my own that I had uh, written on the topic of werewolves. I have been associated with Fate since uh, the early 90s and uh, holding various capacities. I'm now executive editor. And um, being very familiar with Fate, which has published uh, well over 700 issues since 1948. Wow. 
on all kinds of uh, mysterious topics, or topics on the mysterious, I should say. And uh, I just thought it would be great to bring out a series of books where these articles from Fate's History uh, can be enjoyed again by new audiences. They're timeless articles. They're written by the best writers and journalists in the field. Uh, I have articles going uh, back several decades and even uh, right up to the to the very present to the latest issue. And uh, Werewolves and Dogmen um, covers uh, quite a bit of territory. And I am planning others in the series. They're all going to have a theme uh, that's uh, popular now. And uh, I've gotten very uh, positive response uh, from folks who are enjoying these articles um, that have been really hidden in the vaults, and uh, now they're uh, they're freshly published again. Uh, you know, I, I had to laugh uh, when I was reading Werewolves and Dogmen that right off the top because I married into a Greek family, and I remember last Halloween we were you know sitting around the table and the kids were discussing you know what are you going to be and Zachary wanted to be a hobbit and and. Um, and I said, you know, nobody wants to be the, you know, the Frankenstein's monster anymore. Or no one wants to be a, uh, a werewolf. And and uh, then it was either my, my my wife, the lovely Aphrodite, mighty Aphrodite, or my mother-in-law offered up. Did you know that lycanthrope is a Greek word? And I had to say, of course it is. Every <laughs> every single word is, uh, has uh, seems to have uh, a Greek origin. But lycanthrope comes from ancient Greek, doesn't it? Well, it does, and it um, uh, dates to. Um very ancient legend involving uh, the Greek god Zeus or the uh, the Roman named Jupiter. It, the story is told by Roman writers uh, who borrowed from the Greeks. Ovid Metamorphoses uh, contains the story, and it's uh, we get that term from king, a legendary king like Han, uh, who uh, defied um, to use the Roman names. Uh, you know, Jupiter, the king, the king of the gods. Um, he refused to bow down to Jupiter. He didn't believe that he was a god when Jupiter presented himself to the people in his village. And he thought he would devise a very clever test. And he took a slave and boiled him up, cooked him up, and uh, served it, uh, because uh, surely uh, a god would not eat, uh, eat human flesh. And uh, Jupiter uh, instantly knew the ruse, and he was absolutely enraged, and as punishment, he turned the king into a wolf. And so that's where we get the term lycanthropy, lycanthrope, uh, even the shortened version that's so popular today, lycan. Mm. A fascinating uh, story of, of the, you know, the lineage of, of the word. Um, but, you know, as, as someone, I, I, I'm fascinated by stories in the Bible about the Nephilim and, uh, you know, how the... Uh, the uh, the offspring uh, of these uh, the fallen angels who commingled with the daughters of men and produced uh, a race of giants and they they, they talk about uh, in in Genesis in the book of Enoch these giants being the men of renown um, perhaps even the you know the gods of the Greek pantheon and with that in mind and I'm thinking about all of the the, the, the mythological creatures uh, you know half eagle half lion and and uh, we think that this is all simple legend but i'm thinking you know if there was kind of a demonic component to that or even as some suspect maybe um they were they were aliens uh we have all of these chimeras 
maybe there is something, this is my roundabout way of getting to this point, that there may be something to the legend of the werewolf that it might have been some sort of a chimera. What do you think? It's certainly possible. The werewolf is a shapeshifter, a a human being who can um, shapeshift to animal form or even be composed of animal and human forms. And we have so many of our ancient gods who embody both animal and uh, human characteristics, as you've pointed out. And the Egyptians, for example, look at all the the Egyptian gods with uh, humanoid bodies and some sort of bird or animal uh, head to them. Uh, and uh, there were legends of uh, races of beings uh, that were called dogmen in ancient times, too. The Greeks wrote about them. Uh, they were said to reside in India. Uh, they were human bodies with, with dog heads. And, um, of course, there's a blurriness between a wolf's head and a dog head in some of these descriptions. Uh, even Christ- early Christian literature talked about saints preaching to uh, dog-headed uh, human beings. And some um, people say, well, that was just a symbol for the heathens. You know, they were just considered to be animalistic, and and so they were portrayed that way. But I've always believed that there's uh, a genuine component to this, that uh, we do have shape-shifty kinds of beings. Uh, We do have uh, this blurring between uh, human beings and and other life forms um, as part of our history for centuries, for millennia. And I I don't think it's just storytelling. Well, uh, particularly for those who subscribe to the ancient alien uh, theory of the you know the the, uh, the birth of civilizations and so forth and and uh, the idea that aliens have the technology to mess around with genetics and do all sorts of experimentation and here we are now thousands of years later we're we're doing the same thing you know putting the, the gene of a, a pig into a human and so forth so who knows uh, there may be some truth to it there there is there's always as you say a kernel of truth behind every fable and, and legend um, here's something that I didn't know uh, that I learned from werewolves and dogmen, and that is that there are two types of werewolves. There is a voluntary, or sorry, an involuntary werewolf, and that is a, an, an individual uh, that you just mentioned, this um, Roman king who was cursed. That's the involuntary werewolf. But then there is a voluntary werewolf. What is a voluntary werewolf? Well, these are um, human beings who say that they can shapeshift at will. And uh, there were, are many cases from earlier centuries that get blended in with um, the witchcraft craze and the Inquisition of uh, people who say that they were given magical ointments or belts or uh, wolf skins or animal skins by a mysterious magical man or the devil that would enable them to transform at will into, into a wolf, and they would go on these uh, rampages. Uh, and uh, the involuntary uh, werewolf is uh, someone who's under a curse. And we have uh, many stories, especially in medieval times, they're called romances, of people who commit some kind of sin. And it was often a betrayal, like a wife betraying a husband or um, somebody betraying a king. And that individual would be uh, punished by being transformed into a wolf, usually for a set period of time or until someone recognized who the uh, wolf truly was and uh, redeemed him through kindness and uh, as a path of salvation. 
Uh, and uh, then on top of it, Richard, we have medical uh, ly- uh, lycanthropy, uh, and that term is, is often applied to individuals who have a pathology going uh, where they say they, uh, they transform into um, uh, wolves, uh, sometimes under the full moon, uh, sometimes at will, and they have a bloodlust and uh, exhibit a lot of very bizarre behavior. So this is actually uh, considered a a psychological disorder or a pathology? It is. In fact, the term uh, lycanthropy now is usually applied to the medical uh, pathology, uh, and uh, werewolf is applied to other kinds of human shape-shifting, and uh, there are other terms as well uh, for that depending upon, upon culture. But the medical cases, and there haven't been very many documented um, in, uh, uh, in history, but um, these individuals uh, have mental imbalances. Uh, as I mentioned, they crave blood. They might um, kill animals and drink the blood. They might even commit uh, human murders. Um, there were some cases of, um, you know, people... Um, um, running around on all fours and howling at the moon, um, literally acting like an animal, and it is considered um, a, a pathology. Well, it raises the question just before we head into the break, and that is, which came first? Was it the the legend of the werewolf and its portrayal in media that has perhaps influenced uh, these people that that displays this this medical? A pathology of werewolfish type behavior, or did this type of behavior give rise to the legend? I believe that it's probably a bit of both. It's um, probably impossible to separate out as black and white territory. Certainly, we've had uh, the stories of uh, shape shifting into wolf form for a variety of reasons going back into ancient times, and they keep cropping up throughout history. Uh, and uh, they've been picked up by our modern media, which gives us certain stereotypes. However, the individuals who have the pathology, uh, I think they've got something else going on there that's just more than an influence of um, having watched The Wolfman, for example. All right, Rosemary, you stay put. We'll come back and continue to delve into werewolves and dogmen with paranormal investigator, researcher, and author Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Again, the website is visionaryliving.com and check out her online uh, store. And um, what is it now, Rosemary? It's closing in on, must be closing in on 70 books that you have uh, authored or edited and compiled. I'm getting close. Uh, I'm at 68. Getting close. Wow. (laughs) 
very that, I can't tell you how impressive that is to me. That's just um, an amazing accomplishment. Sixty-eight books. So werewolves and dogmen. We were talking about the different types of werewolves: the voluntary, the involuntary. There's even a, a medical. Uh, like lycanthropy, like uh, but I want to get back to the the voluntary werewolf if I can for a moment. Is th- is that related to the the American um, uh, Indian legend of of uh, skinwalkers? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, skinwalker uh, we find in um, Navajo lore and also uh, in other um, Indian lore in the in the American Southwest. And they are considered to be uh, bad witches or sorcerers. They work on the dark side. And they're called skinwalkers because they walk in the skins of animals at night when they're out doing their their evil deeds. And uh, they will shapeshift. They are said to have the power to shapeshift at will into wolves or coyotes, uh, even into birds and, and other animals and the form depending upon what it is they're they're trying to do uh, and uh, uh, they are quite prominent in Native American lore and in fact uh, I came across uh, a recent case which I published on my blog uh, from um, a security guard who was uh, working at a hotel on a, a reservation in, in New Mexico and he was part Apache uh, and he was sitting in his car uh, one night uh, and this gigantic, um, what appeared to be a wolf with supernatural ability, uh, attacked him. It, it uh, started out um, bouncing his car from underneath, and uh, then it appeared in front of his car. And uh, he actually tried tried to chase it down, and uh, it escaped from him at uh, tremendous speed, and he said it was excessively large, and it had the ability to uh, to rock his car uh, with incredible violence. And he reported it, uh, mentioned it to uh, some of the um, uh, people in the Pueblo uh, the next day, and they said, oh, yeah, that was a skinwalker. Um, they were, in fact, very uh, nonchalant about it. Apparently there were uh, cases like that all the time. Uh, and uh, that it was uh, a human being who had taken uh, this werewolf form, or this wolf form, rather, and was evidently just messing around with this fellow. Well, last year I was uh, I was flown down to uh, Albuquerque uh, to do a, an episode of National Park Mysteries, and my driver on out to the location, I, I, uh, I always make a point when I'm ever in a strange town, that I, or one that I've never been to before, I said, you know, is there any place in Albuquerque I should avoid and he sort of pointed in often one general general direction and he said don't go far too far in that direction alone and I asked why and he started to talk about um, uh, witches and skinwalkers and 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 uh, an alarming number of people that have just disappeared on this one particular stretch of road and and uh, he went on to explain what likely happens to them uh, and again it involves uh, witchcraft and, and and skinwalkers, but there's something interesting in, in your description of the the invol or the voluntary uh, werewolf and how one can become uh, a werewolf. And one of them involves drinking rainwater out of a wolf's uh, footprints. Uh, that, that's an old folklore, yeah. and um, I I don't know if it actually works, but uh, yes, if if you find rainwater collected in a wolf print and drink it. Uh, then it will give you the ability to uh, to turn into a wolf. Uh, 
um, many of the individuals throughout history who say that they um, accomplished this at will um, involved the salve or the ointment, again, from supposedly the devil or magical um, kind of person. And uh, there were probably hallucinogenic uh, elements in these ointments that may have given someone the, uh, uh, the hallucination of being able to shapeshift uh, into a, a wolf form or any other kind of animal form. Uh, witches were said to use these ointments as well. Sometimes it was donning a belt. Uh, and um, sometimes uh, there are cases of people who, who said that they could just go out on the night of the full moon. And by the way, it doesn't always have to be the full moon. Yeah, that's kind of a Hollywood uh, creation, isn't it? It is. It is, because there are many cases of, of voluntary werewolfism and even involuntary where um, full moons are not involved. But there are some cases where people say, well, I go out uh, into the full moon and, and take off my clothing and I can will myself uh, into the form of a wolf. Now, uh, when, when these transformations take place, they are almost always associated with these bloody rampages. Um, with the exception of the medieval romances, where the people who are being punished um, to to live as wolves just sort of exist as as a regular wolf uh, would, and uh, you know wait out their curse time. But um, these other cases, from especially the witchcraft Inquisition era, um, involve individuals who uh, would. Um, uh, they, they said they would shapeshift into wolf form, and these these unusual wolves would be seen rampaging through the countryside, killing livestock. Um, there was a fondness for human flesh as well, usually female, usually girls. And they would have these uh, leave mutilated, horribly mutilated corpses behind, with faces ripped off and torsos ripped up. Uh, there would be cannibalism involved, and uh, sometimes they would be caught and brought to trial, and they would readily confess that, yes, they, they had this ability. Now, whether or not they had some, some of that pathology going, uh, it's impossible to, to determine from the court records. Um, there, were, uh, there was a case of a teenage boy in uh, France who, after he confessed to being a werewolf and, and he was jailed, he would run around on all fours and act like an animal uh, for, uh, you know, the rest of his captivity, and he wanted raw meat to eat. Uh, and uh, some of them were tortured. Uh, there was a case uh, of a man named Peter Stubb uh, in uh, Germany who uh, rampaged through the countryside, killing livestock and people, and was captured. He was tortured. He was put on a wheel, uh, with it, and his limbs were cut off. He was beheaded, and then he was burned at the stake. Um, horrible things happened, uh, not only to the victims, but, but to the individuals who said they were werewolves. What about the, um, the uh, depiction in, in uh, Hollywood movies of the, um, the, uh, the silver bullet being the, the, method, the best method to kill a werewolf? Where does that come from? Well, it's got a very dodgy history, and there, there's nothing in ancient lore that connects uh, silver to, uh, to werewolves as an antidote. Uh, silver does have a long history of 
uh, being a, a metal of protection against uh, negativity and evil forces. And um, there are some folklore traditions uh, that you have to use silver bullets to dispatch a werewolf. Probably the origin of this, which then became lodged in Hollywood as, as a fact, goes back to the 18th century to a very famous case in France called the Beast of Gévaudan, which terrorized uh, a part of the Loire Valley for several years. A, a large, uh, it was described as uh, superhuman in size and, and strength, um, killing uh, 60 people by the time the rampage stopped. And supposedly the peasant who finally killed it, the king's men could not, uh, the peasant who finally killed it said he used a silver bullet. And uh, that really um, was was one of the linchpins then of the silver bullet lore that became a staple of uh, werewolf entertainment. I was going to, my guess was maybe the Hunt brothers, for those old enough to remember the Hunt brothers who tried to corner the silver market in the 70s, that maybe they concocted this story to increase <laughs> demand. <laughs> but I like your story much better. I mean, that that that, that uh, lends some credence then to, to using uh, silver bullets. Uh, this goes back to the Loire Valley, you say? Yes, and uh, the, the case started in 1764, and uh, again with a, a rampage of a wolf, and uh, it was uh, described by people as being huge, uh, far bigger than uh, any any wolf that anyone had ever seen. It had an odd build to it that is it looked wolf-like, but it wasn't quite, didn't look like a normal wolf. Was it bipedal or was it all on fours? Uh, it was always seen on f uh, all fours. Um, there are more modern cases of um, the, uh, the creature that goes either on two legs or four. But um, this was a, a savage um, beast and killed people by ripping them up. Their faces would, would usually be uh, ripped off, and uh, their torsos uh, also uh, just opened up as though by razor-sharp claws. And uh, after about a dozen or so people had been killed, um, you know, the, the villagers in, in the area uh, started moving out. They were scared, and they, um, you know, they appealed to uh, to the king for help, and he sent his best huntsman into the area, and uh, they went through the countryside uh, for several months and uh, managed to kill a hundred wolves. And after they did that, they felt that well, surely we must have gotten it, and they went home. And uh, after uh, the huntsman left, then the the uh, wolf rampage started up again. And uh, the last killings were in 1767, and that's when this peasant, uh, Jean uh, Chastel, supposedly used a silver bullet in his rifle to dispatch this creature, which was described as being uh, a very unusual and abnormally large wolf. So uh, the peasants were going to pack it up and take it to uh, the royal court in Versailles to show the king uh, but it started to decompose so badly that um, they had to dispose of it along the way. So no one knows whatever happened to it. Of course, it's easy to dispel something like that as hysteria or just 
uh, you know, simple rural folk seeing something that didn't happen. But 1767, although it seems like a long time ago, we're, that's the, you know, the age of enlightenment and, and, and so forth. So, you know, this is Ben Franklin and, and Thomas Jefferson were alive at this point. This is not, you know, this, this can't be so dismissed so easily. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, the other Hollywood depiction is that uh, the wolf, the wolf man or the werewolf is usually... Uh, bipedal. It's it's uh, it's clearly a human wolf hybrid, uh, but in ancient lore, the, I mean the 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 werewolf was fully wolf. Was it was it was it not? Um, there are depictions showing werewolves that are a combination of human and animal form, but supposedly the shape shifting uh, would be complete, and the human being would look entirely like a wolf and go about on all fours. And uh, there, there was another case in France of a boy who approached some peasant girls who were uh, tending flocks, and uh, his clothes were all ripped up, and he was quite bloodied, and he told them that he, he was uh, a werewolf, and he changed into a wolf and uh, attacked animals and people and, and ate them. And uh, they found, um, you know, mutilated uh, bodies uh, in the vicinity that he said uh, were his handiwork. Uh, his father testified in court that um, his son was an idiot, that is, he, he was, you know, insane or mentally unfit. Rosemary, I'm going to jump in here. We'll, uh, we'll get the result of that court trial in just a moment. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, author of Werewolves and Dogmen, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley has edited and compiled a, uh, a brand new book called Werewolves and Dogmen and uh, featuring some articles that appeared in Fate magazine, which is uh, closing in on its 70th anniversary. Is that right, Rosemary? Um, it is. It, well, it started in uh, 1948 and uh, is uh, really the oldest magazine of its kind, publishing articles on the paranormal UFOs. It started out as primarily a UFO uh, publication in the wake of the Kenneth Arnold sightings over Mount Rainier, and uh, has expanded over the years to include uh, all things mysterious and, and paranormal. Thousands of fabulous articles in the vaults in Fate, uh, written by uh, leading writers and researchers, uh, many of them who are still writing for fate. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm bringing them all back to light. Excellent. So we were talking about the case of this uh, young man who claimed he was a werewolf. They did find mutilated bodies and uh, uh, humans and livestock, his victims, uh, supposedly. There was, uh, this was, in, was this in France as well? It was. Okay. And, um, he was hauled into court, and his father tried to defend him, saying that he was, uh, he was an idiot, which is kind of a harsh term but it basically means you know it, not within his not within his right mind it it took place in um 
the early 1600s, and the boy's name was Jean Grenier, and he said that a man came up to him one day and gave him a wolf skin and uh, told him that he was a werewolf and that if he uh, put this skin on every Monday, Friday, and Sunday for about an hour at dusk, he would be transformed into, uh, into a wolf. And so he said that this was true. Uh, so the court did convict him, uh, and he was sentenced to be hanged, uh, and then his body burned to ashes, which was uh, very characteristic for uh, evil people back then who were associated with the devil and sorcery. But um, in a review of the case, there was clemency, and uh, so he was just imprisoned because of his mental condition. But... Um, uh, a very a very odd case because he was bloody there were mangled mutilated corpses um, in out in the countryside that he said that um, he was responsible for hmm. well if only they had uh, I guess DNA testing back then we could uh, make it a more accurate determination uh, the other uh, aspect of the Hollywood depiction of uh, werewolves that's always been fascinating to me is um, that you can repel werewolves uh, with sulfur where do we know where that uh, that part of the legend comes from um, I'm my feeling is that this is a part of a fiction it may harken back to um, early Greek lore about the three-headed dog that guards Hades, Cerberus, uh, who, um, you know, is associated with sulfur and also with wolfsbane. But the interesting thing I found in uh, modern cases, I have uh, several uh, cases from the 20th century of uh, real werewolves, and these... Uh, these creatures manifested with the smell of sulfur. Hmm. So sulfur was associated with their manifestation, uh, not with with repelling them. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so uh, I think Hollywood has uh, created all kinds of little fictions. Uh, they need fictions like that to make uh, make their movies work. Wolfsbane, for example. Uh, as uh, an herb that repels uh, werewolves, uh, that's more Hollywood than than uh, actual lore as well. Right, and, that the, the wolf's bane was used uh, as sort of an antidote to a, a, a werewolf bite. But wolf's bane is is uh, is uh, a hallucinogen, isn't it? It is, yes, and it may very well have been one of the ingredients in some of these salves and ointments that people used centuries ago when they said they were shape-shifting. Ah, so then in their own minds, they were, in fact, a werewolf. Interesting. Uh, we are, we're coming up on another break. This is a short segment, but I'll ask you this now. We'll con continue on in the next segment, and that is uh, in England. Um, I know that uh, a colleague of yours and a frequent guest on this program, Nick Redfern, uh, went over to, uh, to England with some other researchers, and they were, they were trying to hunt down these uh, elusive uh, creatures, werewolves and so forth. Uh, and he, write, he wrote about um, the, and I, I'm pretty sure you have as well, uh, people seeing these, uh, these bipedal wolf-like creatures, not as menacing as the one in, in you know, sort of the Lon Chaney uh, junior uh, movies, but uh, they were often associated with ancient uh, religious sites like Stonehenge and so forth. 
There is a connection. There's a very odd connection, uh, not only over in England but in America as well, where uh, what we would call dogmen, um, as opposed to werewolves, like a, a human shape-shifting into a werewolf or a mysterious cryptid or creature that uh, exists in its own right as being composed of human and wolf or dog characteristics, and they have been seen around um, like ancient burial mounds, uh, especially where most of the sightings have occurred in the Great Lakes area. All right, let me jump in here, Rosemary. We'll pick up on that on the other side. The Conspiracy Show, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. More in a moment. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins us once a month on The Conspiracy Show, our paranormal researcher, investigator, the author of, uh, well, she's closing in on 70 books, and her latest uh, is uh, Werewolves and Dogmen, and she uh, is the editor and compiler, a number of uh, articles that, uh, that come from Fate Magazine, the vaults of Fate Magazine. Uh, we were, um, before the break, we were talking about the connection uh, between uh, werewolf sightings and uh, sort of religious or mystical ancient uh, sites, uh, uh, burial sites, and so forth. You, I was mentioning Stonehenge, but you said also here in, in, in North America. Uh, yes, the, the creatures that we call dogmen, um, they're actually seen all, all over, and that would be, you know, a, a humanoid torso. Uh, usually with uh, a wolf tail, uh, wolf hind legs and and feet, human-like forearms that end in uh, wolf paws, and then a wolf head with uh, a very obvious wolf snout. And um, in the Great Lakes area, Wisconsin and Michigan in particular, there have been many sightings of them. There's a famous one called the Beast of Bray Road, which um, Linda Godfrey has documented since 1991, even though sightings of it go back much earlier. In fact, the earliest sighting um, that uh, has surfaced goes back to 1936, where a dogman was seen at an old Indian burial mound on the grounds of what was now a Catholic convent. And so uh, the, the question then arises, Richard, is, is there an energy factor, maybe an earth energy factor um, with sacred sites, burial mounds, that is conducive to the manifestation of these creatures? Ley lines, for example, uh, why are they seen in particular spots? And I think that we, we really have to examine the earth energy uh, component of that. Uh, but the dogmen sightings seem to be more of a, of a specter, uh, not necessarily a, f a physical entity. Is that a fair assumption? Yes and no. Some, for some people, it is of a spectral nature, and for others, it looks like a flesh-and-blood creature. 
Uh, and, uh, for example, there have been uh, many sightings of the Beast of Bray Road where people have seen it uh, off the side of the road uh, or in the road or, or out in the woods. And, um, uh, you know, admittedly, some of the sightings are fleeting. Um, some are not. And uh, for, for many people, these, uh, these creatures look very solid, and they're quite frightening, as you can imagine. Now, uh, what we don't have is, is cases of, of these creatures um, on rampages attacking people. Uh, there was a case in Wisconsin where a woman driving on a country road late at night uh, passed by one of these creatures. It was bes- uh, at the side of the road, and it appeared to be eating roadkill. Um, there have been individuals who've been close to these creatures and they're frightened they're afraid of it becoming aggressive they have the feeling that it could become aggressive but we don't have the the classic werewolf rampage so it sounds like we're are they are they at all related or are we talking about two separate uh cryptids or, or entities here i uh, we're actually in my opinion talking about two separate things that have uh, a, a connection uh, that is the human and the animal component to it. So the dogmen may not be shapeshifters. They may be cryptids or unknown entities. That's maybe the way they look. And uh, they may exist in, for example, a parallel reality, an alternate reality on Earth, and, and in these highly energized zones where we have the sacred sites, the burial mounds, maybe ley line energy. Um, people can can uh, come across them in, in the same way people come across uh, Bigfoot. Uh, whereas the werewolf, uh, by technical definition, is a human being who, through some means, uh, transforms uh, temporarily into a wolf state. Have you been to Bray Road? Have you have you done a, a, an investigation, field research? I have not. Uh, I've done investigations in um, Pennsylvania and Ohio uh, where sightings have taken place. But um, I'd, I'd love to get up to Bray Road because there are so many sightings out in that uh, rural area. Uh, Wisconsin and Michigan do seem to be the capital of dogmen sightings. But um, as, uh, as, we've give, as we researchers have given this topic more attention, more people have been coming forward with their reports, and uh, they are scattered all uh, all over America, and I would say all over North America as well. Tell me about your your investigation in, in Pennsylvania. Did you did you have an encounter? Did you see anything unusual? I have not. I have uh, not seen um, a dog man, um, and you know, have mixed feelings about it. But you know, if you're out there researching, it's always good to have an eyewitness. Uh, so it it uh, it's about going out to uh, the area where sightings have occurred, interviewing eyewitnesses. With a lot of these cases, uh, Richard, um, sightings are not um, regular. You know, they're irregular, uh, or they're one-offs, or the next sighting occurs um, maybe miles and miles away. Uh, people say, well, why don't you just go do a stakeout? It's, it's not all that easy. But um, I have uh, taken many field trips uh, for both Bigfoot and, uh, and Dogman um, out where um, they have been sighted. 
just to see if I can also pick up some clues on the terrain in the area that might explain why these sightings took place in those locations. And, I mean, is there any any tangible evidence, even a, a, a footprint or uh, any photographic uh, evidence, audio tape, anything? Um, I know that Linda has collected some uh, footprint casts uh, that are inconclusive, like a lot of them are. Uh, I have not seen any footprints myself. And uh, the footprint for a dogman would be very much like a wolf print. Um, it might appear uh, excessively large. Uh, it would not be a, a human print. They are very elusive and um, they don't seem to be interested in attacking people. Um, they seem to want to avoid people uh, more than uh, more than anything. So they may be uh, creatures of the the demimonde of planet Earth, you know, that exist in that limbo twilight zone between our reality and some other reality. Right, right. Back to werewolves for a moment. Is uh, can you share with us maybe is there a modern a case uh, of of a werewolf maybe closer to home in North America. We often hear about uh, cases in Europe, and and uh, I mean wolves were were plentiful in Europe at one time, and and uh, many wolf human encounters. But what about uh, modern cases of werewolves in in uh, the United States, for example? Well, um, there aren't any good modern cases that are uh, non medical pathology in America. And most of the modern cases uh, that I found, including the several that I put in the book, dealt with um, incorporeal uh, creatures that seemed to have the ability to attack and kill people but were associated with human beings at one time. For for example, um, a case in um, what used to be Yugoslavia uh, where a man supposedly sold his soul to the devil and uh, was able to shapeshift into wolf form, and he consumed blood and um, was said to still reside uh, hundreds of years later in a cave and come out and attack people who would be killed in animal-like fashion at night. And, and yet um, the, the individual, the, the writer who wrote the story, who rented a, a cottage in, in the uh, area where this creature uh, was attacking people, never saw anything, uh, felt invisible presences, something coming into the cottage, rattling his doors, uh, leaving a sulfur smell. Uh, and uh, one of his servants actually gave him a gun with a silver bullet in it <laughs> um, and, and told him that he needed that to protect himself. Um, so they, they are more, I would say, spirit-like or a, a non-corporeal um, um, perhaps uh, I guess he would say even astral in nature. That's a that's a good point. That that uh, you know these creatures may not exist in the on, on our physical plane, but on the astral uh, plane, perhaps. Uh, as do you know of any cases where people who have encountered a werewolf-like creature, uh, perhaps during a, an out-of-body experience on the astral plane? I have talked to people who. Uh, claim to have the ability to shapeshift into a werewolf form. No one has demonstrated it for me. <laughs> Lucky uh, for you. And, you know, when it, push comes to shove, well, the argument is made that, well, 
Um, I, I don't do it um, as a circus act or to entertain people. Uh, I only do it under certain circumstances. I have interviewed people like that. They claim to be able to shape, the sh- and the shape-shifting is done on the astral form. Um, some of them will say that they have uh, limited physical changes, like their hands will become more paw and claw-like, uh, their their hands will become hairier like an animal. Uh, they will acquire uh, fur-like uh, a body covering, and maybe their uh, their face will become more elongated. But it's uh, the physical component of it. They say is not completely into a wolf. That's done on the astral. So I've I've never seen it demonstrated. Uh, all I have to go on is is testimony from people. But, you know, there are magical uh, uh, rituals for shape-shifting. And if uh, shamans and skinwalkers can do it, why could not somebody else learn the means to do that? Have you, have you ever tried to uh, determine what the, uh, the ritual is, the, whether it's an incantation, the ingredients in the ointment and so forth? I mean, somebody must have that knowledge uh, still uh, that's been passed down you know, from witch doctor to witch doctor and so forth. I mean, do you, is it written down somewhere, do you think? Uh, it probably is. Uh, and there are, you know, incantations that have been uh, put out in folklore and in so-called magical um, uh, textbooks from time to time. In fact, an article that I have in... Um, the uh, anthology there are 32 articles in the anthology and one of them is so you want to be a werewolf and it's uh, it's about um, all the poisonous plants that you need to assemble um, uh, many uh, warnings about uh, you know the, these are deadly toxic ingredients and um, some of the uh, the incantations that are included in this article were taken from earlier works, um, such as, um, oh golly, his name is um, Elliot O'Donnell's uh, book called Werewolves, in 19, uh, which was published around 1912 or so, um, and he claimed to have gotten that from earlier folklore. So uh, there is a there are some preparations and recipes here. I don't recommend that anyone try them. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. A how-to guide. How to become a werewolf. Because uh, uh, the ingredients, well, it's like hemlock, henbane, um, opium. Uh, yikes. Not to be trifled with. Listen, Rosemary, we are out of time, but uh, congratulations on uh, compiling some fascinating, amazing stories in werewolves and dogmen. And uh, always great to have you on. Well, thank you, Richard, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Visionary Living. Listen, that's it for us. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Nathan Davidson, Joel Schoenwile, uh, uh, Albert Finzel, and uh, Ryan White. And uh, back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.